0: we're going to be looking at this idea of greatness. What is greatness? What does it mean to be great? How how does one identify themselves as great and what do we have to accomplish? Is there a, a checklist of well, that's what it means to be great. Well, this is what it means to be great. I think if any of us were honest in whatever endeavor it is in life that we may be a part of, we want to be the greatest, right? We want to be We want to be good at something. We want to be great at something. If you are a salesman, you probably want to be the greatest salesman. If you're a parent, you want to be the greatest parent. If you are, fill in the blank. You want to do it, and you want to do it well. Well, this morning, what we're going to talk about is this idea of greatness, and I think it's impossible for us to talk about greatness without referencing the great Muhammad Ali. If anybody has ever wondered who's the greatest, Muhammad Ali would have told you, right? He said, I am the greatest, he actually argued with himself a little bit because everybody knows the I am the greatest quote, but, but I found this one as well that I thought was interesting. He said, I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, most scientific, most skillfulest fighter in the ring today. Unfortunately for Muhammad Ali, he realized that, that ultimately that, that changed, Right? father time caught up with him as it does with everyone and so uh, he can no longer declare himself the the prettiest, the most superior, the greatest because he died about five years ago. So what is true greatness? If that's not uh, the true picture of greatness, what is greatness? What does greatness look like? Well we're going to look at Luke chapter 9 this week. We're going to look at uh, five verses and we're going to see what Jesus describes as greatness. True greatness can be found in humility and cooperation. That's what we're going to see from our passage this morning. So I'd invite you guys to make your way to Luke chapter 9. We're still plugging our way through Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 46 through 50. 46 through 50. So when you guys find your way there, you give me a thumbs up and we'll, uh, we'll jump into the passage together. We good? All right, let's pick it up in verse 46. So says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Let's pray together, guys. God, we thank you for, God, for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us every single Sunday morning. God, every single opportunity, every time we pick up your word, God, we, uh, many of us have copies of your word that we can pick it up and hear from you anytime we want to. But God, over the next few minutes, we pray that, that we would, that we would hear from you. God, that you would speak to us. God, that you would show us what true greatness looks like. God, that you would show us the importance of, of humility, of the, the position that, that you hold in our lives and the position that, that we hold in our lives. So God, we pray that you would speak, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright guys, well the first thing that we're going to see in this passage is, is what greatness and humility looks like. Greatness and humility. If we look at those first three verses, we see this little interaction, this thing going on. And, and it's important for us before we get here though to remember what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You guys remember two weeks ago we had this incredible story where Jesus took Peter, James, and John and they went up a mountain and Jesus revealed uh, this picture of his glory, right? Right? So Jesus shows those three disciples who he really was, that he was the glorious God of, of all eternity, and they have this incredible interaction with Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. Meanwhile, the other nine disciples, we've got 12 of them, right? 12, 3, all right, so we've got nine left that are down at the bottom of the hill. And those nine that were at the bottom of the hill were trying to, to cast out a demon. We're trying to heal this boy that we looked at that story last week, Right? So now we, we, we see Jesus heal the boy. The disciples were unable to, but Jesus did. And now we've got the disciples' attention turns in towards each other. That's where we pick up. So we, we look at verse 46. It says an argument started among them. After Jesus' healing of that boy last week, the, the jealous tempers started to flare. And so the disciples start fighting with each other. And there's an argument about who's the greatest. It's too bad Muhammad Ali wasn't there. He could have told him who the greatest was. But, but they're probably arguing about things like, well, I cast out five demons. You remember when we went on that ministry around Galilee? I cast out all those demons. Obviously, I'm the greatest. Another one perks up. We'll said, Well, I healed a blind guy. That's a, that's a really big deal. You know, the man that couldn't see can now see. Maybe another one spoke up and said, you guys, you didn't even get invited to the top of the mountain. I was one of the three that, that got to go up the mountain with Jesus, so obviously it's got to be at least one of the three of us. They, they have this little exchange going on. That's all speculation. That's just me imagining things. But, but it tells us that there's this argument going on among the disciples. Who is the greatest? Meanwhile, all those things that I just mentioned, all those things, those criteria of, of how they may have been arguing, well, I'm the greatest. Well, well, I'm the greatest. Do you notice all of those things? They, they forget that it wasn't in the disciples' power that these things were happening, right? It wasn't in the disciples' power that they had been sent out and, and, and done ministry around Galilee. It wasn't their power. It was, it was Jesus said, I'm going to give you my power to go and to do these things. God's gracious hand had reached down, had, had worked in the lives of these ordinary guys. Jesus didn't pick extraordinary people from, from the best schools and from the best job. He He picked normal guys to follow him around, to, to learn what it looked like to, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then he sent them out. God's gracious hand had reached out to them, had, had called them, had taught them, had, had sent them out and equipped them for ministry. But as they're arguing, as this exchange is happening among the disciples, Jesus overhears, and Jesus knows their thoughts. It tells us that, that Jesus, it says, they knew, he knew what they were thinking. And he said, I'm going to teach them an important lesson. I'm going to teach them an important lesson. So he goes and he grabs a child and says, child, stand here next to me, little boy, little girl. Stand, stand right here. I've got to teach these guys something. He says, whoever welcomes this child. He, he points to this child, this, this simple child standing there next to him. He says, whoever welcomes this child and uses the child as an object lesson, right? Well, in the first century, I think it's important for us to note, children were not viewed as important. Children were considered fairly insignificant. They were weak members of society who didn't really contribute a whole lot. They weren't great thinkers by that point. They weren't uh, great contributing members of society that were, that were working or producing or, or doing different things. They were, they were regarded as a waste of time, according to the Talmud. One rabbi wrote, Morning sleep and, and midday wine, chattering with children and tarrying when, in places where men of the common people assemble. Well, those things destroy a man. What they're saying is spending time with children was not a worthwhile way to spend their time. The disciples probably thought in line with, with their culture, in line with the, the popular views of their day, that greatness is determined by the company that a person keeps. That the great associate with the great and deal with great things of great importance and anybody that doesn't fit into that group is, is insignificant. Is not worth spending time with. I think it's important for us to note, Jesus here is teaching the disciples this lesson. He calls this child over, and the child comes stand next to me, and he says, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. Jesus is telling them, He's, he's not telling them that they can earn God's favor somehow by, by checking this box off. He's not saying that the babysitters have a special position in God's kingdom, that, that they get a little extra bonus. What he's saying to them is that how they related to a child, how they related to the most insignificant members of society would indicate how they were related to Jesus, how they were ultimately related to, to God the Father, right? Because we start to think about it for a minute. Those disciples were, were right in some sense. They were probably more significant than whoever that child was that Jesus said, come over here. God had called these 12 men to, to follow him, to learn what it looked like to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God. They had gone around just a couple of weeks earlier and, and performed incredible miracles. They had been casting out demons and healing the sick and, and telling people about the kingdom of God. They, they were kind of significant, right? They were more significant than that child that was there. But you know what? There's a much bigger gap in the, between the significance of the disciples and the child and the significance of, of Jesus, the Son of God, and the disciples. There's a much bigger gap between Jesus and the disciples than there is between the disciples and, and the child. Jesus is saying, guys, the way that you treat the least of society well, that indicates how, how much you understand about me. The way, that you, the way that you treat this child, the way that you treat the least indicates whether or not you, you truly understand what I came here to do. It shows that, that if people are willing to humble themselves, to, to care for the least... It shows that they understand how much God loved them and cared for them and gave of himself when Jesus came and put on flesh and lived among the earth. Jesus caps this argument with a concisely stated principle in verse 48. He says, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. The one who's the greatest, as, as the disciples are having this argument, well, who's the greatest? Well, I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. No. The one who is the greatest among Jesus' disciples is not the one who can boast of the greatest accomplishments. It's not the one that can boast of the most prominent relationships. It's the disciple who would identify the, the closest with the lowly, who would receive the lowly, who would, who would minister Christ's kindness to them. See, what that shows is that, is that they understood how much they had received from Jesus. We don't love other people because they deserve it. We love other people because God has loved us. We don't show kindness to other people because they deserve it. We, we show kindness to other people because God has shown kindness and mercy and grace to us. True greatness, as Jesus is telling these guys, is, is the opposite of pride, is the opposite of exclusivity, is the opposite of this, this puffed-up picture that they were presenting as they were arguing over, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest. True greatness is portrayed in humility. I was thinking about this idea of humility this week. I thought it would be important for us to to have a definition and some descriptions of humility. The Oxford Dictionary talks about humility. It it defines it as a modest or low view of one's own importance. It's not a modest or low view of yourself. It's, It's just a modest or low view of your importance. John Piper talking about humility, he said, Humility begins with a sense of subordination to God in Christ. Reference Matthew ten twenty four that that says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. What that's saying is, you know, when we understand that we belong to God, and we serve a God, we serve a Savior, we, we follow this guy Jesus, who Philippians 2 says, he, he gave up the glories of heaven and humbled himself, and took on the appearance of a man, took on flesh, took on all of the, the stuff that we deal with. Jesus never got hungry before he became a man. Jesus never had to deal with pain uh, before he put on flesh and became uh, a man. But he humbled himself, even to the point of death, to, uh, to give his life for us. Well, if that's the example of our Savior, well, I think Matthew would say, a disciple is not above his teacher, we should be humble too. C.S. Lewis, talking about humility, I I thought this one was interesting. He said, a truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. It's funny, this this idea of humility is one that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around because as soon as we start thinking about humility, I've never heard someone say, I am a humble person and been accurate. Because as soon as they say, you know how humble I am? Uh Uh-oh. They kind of just proved that they weren't, right? Think about it. As Christians, we all started in a position of humility. The whole nature of being a follower of Christ, the the whole way that this deal works with Jesus is, is we have to acknowledge that we were sinners, right? We acknowledge that we are insufficient, that we aren't worthy of God's favor and God's grace on our own. That God has a standard and we didn't meet it. And so, in acknowledging that, we we humbly come to our Savior, Jesus, who, who did earn God's favor, who did live and meet up to God's perfect standard, and in doing so, is able to offer salvation to, to sinners like me and sinners like you. We forget about that grace that was shown to us because, because that entire transaction of, of becoming a Christian, of receiving What the Bible calls justification, that God looks at us and says, no, 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 they are no longer guilty. They are forgiven. Their sentence is wiped clean. That entire process requires us humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, I I need you. But there's also a temptation in that, right? See, we all start in a good spot of acknowledging our need for grace and our, our need for mercy, But after that, there's that justification, that big word that that says God declared us not guilty, but there's also a process that's called sanctification. And sanctification is God's process that, you know, he he says you're not guilty, your sins are no longer counted on on your account. But practically every day we wake up and we still sin, right? We still look a little bit like the person that we used to be. And so this process of, of sanctification is God's looking at us saying, well, we're going we're gonna to clean that up. We're going we're gonna to start to change some of those habits. And so as we mature in our faith, as we mature in our relationship with the Lord, things start to change, right? Things look a little bit different. The, the language that we used to use, we don't use anymore. The things that used to be important to us aren't quite as important to us anymore. The sinful habits that, that used to be such an important part of our lives, well, those things start to, to fall away and melt away, and so it's easy for us, it's, it's tempting for us as believers to look at that and go, you know what, look at me, look at me, see the, the person that I used to be, well, I'm not like that anymore. Look at how incredible I am, and those changes can, can tempt, it, tempt us, they can start to become a, a source of pride. They can start to become a place where we look at ourselves and, and silently imagine, you know what, I must be pretty good. You're welcome, God. I'm here. The party can start now. We become proud of the process. We become proud of the progress that we've made, and we become proud of our spirituality and that that constant battle against our flesh, that constant fight that we have to fight this fight of thinking ourselves great just like the disciples did. True greatness is not something that can be achieved by, by, by puffing our chest out and deciding, I am the greatest. True greatness is not something that's achieved by those that are seeking to be great. True greatness is something that God bestows upon the humble, who are selflessly pointing the, the glory, the attention, the fame towards him, not towards ourselves. The answer is not, Mr. Mr. Ali, let's correct that quote. I am not the greatest. He is the greatest. We see greatness in humility. The other thing that we see in this passage is greatness in cooperation. If we look at verses 49 and 50, we see this idea of cooperation. Jesus is saying, hey guys, be careful. Verses 49 and 50, John answered, As Jesus has just instructed them, be humble. It says, John answered and said, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. During their Galilean ministry, as they, the disciples had been sent out to these different cities and towns around the area of Galilee, John and, and the other disciples had encountered a successful exorcist freelance exorcist. He wasn't part of their group, but he was going around, and and it tells us that this man had been doing good things, right? But apparently the man had not been called by Jesus in the same way that the disciples had been called by Jesus. He hadn't been commissioned in the same way that that the disciples had been commissioned and sent out. He hadn't been privileged to receive the instruction from Jesus. He, He wasn't privileged to be part of the small group that Jesus said Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So it says here that John and the other disciples, it says they tried to stop him. Jesus, we took care of it. We, were, we, we tried to stop this guy. It says in verse 49 that the disciples saw a man that was casting out demons. This wasn't a rumor. This wasn't a report. This wasn't secondhand. They saw it with their own eyes. They were eyewitnesses to these miracles that were happening says that this man is doing the right thing with the right motive, right? It says that he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He wasn't out there doing his own thing. He was he was doing what the disciples were being sent out to do, right? He just wasn't part of their club. So we might ask, why did they try to stop him? Why? Well, I just I just said it a second ago. Why would you stop someone from obviously doing a good thing for a good reason? Well, the answer that that the disciples would have given was But Jesus, he's not part of our club. He doesn't follow with us, is what verse 49 says. Their opposition boils down to one simple fact. He wasn't part of their clique. He wasn't part of their little group. He he wasn't part of their little tribe, and so they tried to shut it down. They said, Jesus, he's not one of us. He's not one of the chosen 12 that you picked out to go and do all these important things. See, we're the greatest, Jesus, and he's not part of our group, so they raised the, the group above the mission in doing that. This is what, as as I was studying this week, I found this preacher that um, that talked a little bit about this, that I want to share a little bit of what he had to say about this. Tabidi Anyabwila, he's a, a preacher down in the Caribbean, he calls this tribalism. Tribalism, not Christian ministry. See, he, he points out the fact that that sin, the sin here that the disciples are, are, are falling right back into, it's the same at the very core of, of the sin. It's the same. It's got the same root as what Jesus was just addressing a couple of verses ago. Their sinful pride about being privileged disciples, about being the greatest, had put them in a spot where they were speaking out of turn. See, tribalism will make you crazy. Tribalism was going to get these disciples into a little bit of trouble here. See, the disciples had been sent out on their first training mission. They were, they were just trainees trying to, to learn how to do something. Jesus had given them the power and the authority to go out and, and heal the sick and, and cast out demons. And, and they come across somebody that's actually doing what they're being trained to do, and, and they tried to stop him for it. They weren't trying to stop uh, someone that was doing something in error. It wasn't that he was doing the wrong thing. They were trying to stop the work of God. You know why? Because it wasn't them doing the work of God. We've got a lot of ways of being tribal, don't we? Tabidi, as he was talking about these tribal divisions, he he mentioned lots of different things that we can be divided over. See, we've got gender tribalism, right? We've got men and women. Men will sometimes say, well, women, they just, what are you going to do? And you know what? I hear the exact same thing from women sometimes. Men. We've got gender tribalism that, that we, we separate. We've got theological tribalism. You know, take your pick, whether it's Reformed versus Arminian, whether it's uh, the, the way that we view baptism, whether it's the way that we view the end times. There, there's all these theological issues that, that people get divided up over. Well, they're not in our camp. They, they don't believe the same thing that I believe about whatever it is. There's also generational tribalism, young people and old people, right? Old people, they just don't understand the way that young people today, ugh, stay off my lawn. We've got class tribalism. There's the rich class, there's the middle class, there's the poor class, and you don't, you don't cross those lines, right? That seems like one that, that has kind of become a, a really obvious division among people in our country right now. What about ethnic tribalism? Racial tribalism. You've got black versus white versus Hispanic versus... We have had such an incredibly divided year as people have looked at these issues of race and gone, well, you're not like me, so get into our little camps. What about political tribalism? You voted for the wrong person. Democrats versus Republicans, right? We see all these ways that people split themselves up and, and divide themselves up that if you're not in my camp on this issue and if you're not in my camp on this issue and if you're not in my camp on, well, then you're not with me. You don't believe the right things. Some people even take that one step further to go, well, you're, you're evil, you're wrong. We can't, we can't associate together because you're fill in the blank. Jesus' answer to John, though, in, in seeing this start to happen, was both a prohibition and a principle. He says, do not stop him. But he also says, whoever is not against you is for you. What Jesus is saying here is that, that his followers have a bigger picture view than something that just has to match perfectly with my little views on everything. His desires are that his followers would have a, a kingdom mindset a kingdom-minded heart, that we look at the, the entire picture of, of how God's at work, not just in my political party, not just in my race, not just in my, my little theological camp that I've got. God's at work around the world. There are people worshiping in China that, that are worshiping the same God as we are this morning. There are people in Europe that are worshiping the same God that we're war- worshiping this morning. There are people all around the world in all different places. There are people all throughout history that have have worshipped and held the same truth that we hold in our hands, that we've got sitting in our laps today. I thought it was interesting, while Paul was in prison in Rome, he talked about this same thing. Paul learned that rival preachers were seizing the opportunity. As Paul was in prison, rival preachers were seizing the opportunity to, to make a name for themselves, to gain some, some popularity. And you know what Paul's response was? Paul's response was Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. He hears this report and he says, well, what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. He's got a bigger mindset than Paul's kingdom. He says, as long as Christ is preached, as long as the gospel is going forward, that's okay. It doesn't have to be me. The practice of excluding others who minister in Christ's name because they're, they're not one of us has become all too frequent in the Christian church today, too. It's easy for us to look out at, at the culture and go, oh, politics, man. Yeah, they're a They're a minefield. Oh, racial stuff that's been happening over the last few years. Well, that's 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 a minefield. That's not in our church, though. But you know what? The church does it sometimes, too. Right? The church has to guard itself against this same issue because, because the church sometimes shuts out outsiders, as we would call them, who are actually Christian brothers, Christian sisters, who who believe the same gospel that we believe, but but we we shun them as outsiders because they're not associated with our camp, whatever that specific belief is. Well, they don't believe what I believe about baptism, so obviously they can't be a brother or sister. They don't believe what what we believe about worship style. They don't worship the same way as I. Can you believe they worship with an organ on Sunday mornings? How? Obviously they don't know Jesus. Well, they don't believe the same thing that I believe about election and free will and, and how God works all of that together. So so obviously they don't they don't understand. They don't they don't believe what I believe about revelation. They don't yeah, fill in the blank. Whatever it is that however it is that we look at these issues, the church, the the, the kingdom church, the, the the entirety of God's people as a whole, the Christians of the world, they get so divided up over issues like what we believe about this or what we believe about that, how we worship, what color the, the, the chairs are, whether we have chairs in our sanctuary or pews. Don't get me wrong. There are necessary divisions for us to make. There are the, such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as, as true and false beliefs. There are things that we, we have to be dogmatic about. We should be dogmatic about as the church. It's important for us to draw and defend lines on certain issues. We have dogma that we absolutely have to hold to. Who is God? That's a big one. We, we have to believe the same things about God. If you're not in agreement with the existence of the Trinity or, or that, that God is... The, the rest of this stuff is kind of irrelevant, right? Right? We have to agree on who's God. We, we have to agree on Jesus' human existence, his, his literal life and death and burial and resurrection. The, the entire premise of Christianity rises or falls on the real existence and death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul said it himself. If Jesus wasn't raised, all of our faith is in vain. We have to believe in the absolute inspiration and sufficiency of scripture if we don't believe that this is true what are we doing we have to agree on this we can't we can't know anything is true if we don't hold to the fact that the bible is true we believe in absolute truth we we have to stand up for those things right who is god what is the scripture how are we saved those are things those aren't those aren't little issues that we can agree to disagree on those are big issues we we got to be in the guardrails on those things you don't get to be moving the same direction as everybody else if you're not inside of those guardrails but you know what there's also things where we split up over things like worship we split up over things like, how do you read the book of Revelation? We split up over things like baptism. We split up over, over these other things. You know what? There are brothers and sisters in a Presbyterian church down the street that are brothers and sisters. They may disagree with us on baptism or on this or on that. It's okay. They're allowed to be wrong. It's okay. Right? They don't agree with me, so obviously they're wrong, but, but we can still have grace with that, Right? We laugh about it, but sometimes there's people that go, well, they're not in my camp. If they're not a man with a shaved head and a beard that that believes this and believes that, well, obviously they're all idiots. Because bald people with beards are the only ones that know anything, right? Tribalism. When tribalism occurs among God's people, who are all worshiping the same Savior the same way, believe the same gospel, that attitude of, but, but they're not in our club. They're not a part of our camp. They're not with us. That attitude is to the shame of the church. So let's put all this together. Let's, let's wrap all this up and put a pretty bow on it. So, so Jesus is teaching the disciples here in these verses. He's teaching them that, that greatness lies not in receiving preferential treatment. It's not in being considered the most important or uh, the most significant in society. It's not in having more authority than other people's. On the contrary, true greatness involves serving others, especially the lesser of society. Like that little child that Jesus stood up next to him and said, guys, it's about, it's about these children. John the Baptist was described as one of the greatest men. Luke 7, 28, Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John the Baptist. But John the Baptist truly understood his position, right? John chapter 3, he says that, that Jesus must become greater. He must become greater and I must become less. Humility is the key to this entire thing. When we lay aside our personal hopes for success, our personal goals of, 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 of achieving glory, of achieving greatness, well, that is where joyful worship can truly take root in us. That's where obedient service can, can truly become an identifying mark of who we are. That's where there's incredible freedom. That is the secret to true greatness is when we realize it's not about me, it's about him. It's not about us it's about Jesus that is the secret to true greatness so here's the challenge for this week super practical it's going to be a little bit weird when we try to leave here today though I'll tell you guys Romans chapter 12 talks about the marks of a true Christian talks about what it looks like to be to be someone who truly understands and has received grace and mercy from God and so uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 3 It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Well, that is kind of a a fancy way of saying humility is important. We shouldn't think of ourselves as more important or more significant than we should think. But then if you keep reading, there's there's all kinds of good stuff. Go back and read those verses sometime. They're awesome. Romans chapter 12. I love that chapter. But there's one of my favorite verses. It's, it's a fun little idea as we get closer to the end of that chapter. So here's the challenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's one of the things, one of the marks that Paul identifies of a true believer, of a true Christian, of someone who, like verse 3 mentions, is, is truly humble. It says, outdo one another in showing honor hey guys, make a competition of how much you can care more about other people instead of yourself. That's what Paul's challenging them to do. And that's what I'm going to challenge us to do this week. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not having a low opinion of yourself. It's having no opinion of yourself. It's being focused more on other people than on, on what I want or what I think or what I deserve. My rights and my desires I set them aside because I want to do what honors someone else. So when I look at this, outdo one another in showing honor, you know what that means? That, that might mean really practically holding the door open for someone. No, you go first. It's going to get awkward when we all try to leave here because now I've challenged all of you. No, stand there and hold the door and let someone else go first. None of us are ever going to leave this building. I'm sorry. We'll read the Bible together or something in a little bit. Means taking the, the the further away parking spot so that someone can have the honor of being closer. It means uh, letting your significant other choose the radio station in the car because that that fight of the preset button, right? No, we're going to listen it. No, we're going to listen to my music. It means that where do you want to go for dinner, honey? Your choice. Again, I'm sorry. You guys are all going to be stuck in this building and you're all going to be hungry because no one's ever going to decide. Where we're just gonna go eat lunch. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think it's a fun little way that Paul said make a game out of this. Care more about other people than you care about yourselves. Because if all of us are caring more about other people than about ourselves, it's gonna get weird, but it's gonna be awesome. Because there's gonna be this incredible picture of what Jesus describes in John 15 the way that the world will look at the church and know that we're his disciples is by the way that we love each other, by the way that we treat each other. Humility is the key to greatness. I am the greatest if I am the least. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for, uh, God, for your word. God, we thank you for your work in our lives. God, we thank you for salvation. And it's in that salvation, it's in that us humbling ourselves to, to acknowledge and to admit God, we are not enough on our own. God, we do not meet up to your standard on our own. God, we are imperfect, sinful people. But God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for the way that you have generously given to us far more than we deserve. God, help us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. God, help us to keep that as a a significant part of the way that we look at every day. Because God, if we remember how much we have been loved, how generous you have been to us, how much we have received and been given, God, it makes it easier for us to to, to consider ourselves as less important than others and give generously to other people the same way that you have given generously to us. God, help us to be people who give. God, help us to be people who are identified by the way that we outdo one another in showing honor the way that we love other people more than we love ourselves. God, we humble ourselves before you this morning, and God, help us to humble ourselves before, before the world, before everyone that we come in contact with. God, help us to be people who understand true humility. Put ourselves of no esteem so that we can lift you higher. God, we lift you up And we give you the praise this morning because you deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.